All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Are you doing all right out there? Feeling good? Okay, thanks for the feedback. I'm glad to know you're here and uh, you're awake. You're ready, right? You're ready to consider the word together. Uh, it's a beautiful day to be able to uh, hear God's word. Uh, you know, each time we're up here, we get some new things that happen. Uh, so I just about ripped my headset off just a second ago. And then I think today's a little windier, so I'm a little concerned about some of these tents blowing up here uh, during the sermon. Uh, I preached in Detroit not too long ago, and it was, uh, it was terribly windy the entire time. And uh, I didn't bring any weights up for my notes. And so the whole time I was preaching like this with my hands down. Anytime I try to make a point like this, you know, your Bible would flip about 10 pages forward. So I've got a few weights up here, so hopefully that'll help us. Uh, but we're looking at Hebrews 12 together. Uh, last week we started into Hebrews chapter 12, and we gathered together to consider this chapter that perhaps surprised some of us in its relevance to our lives. I mean, we, we know all about Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. We know its relevance and significance to our lives, but we often don't appreciate chapter 12 and the call to endurance in the second half of the author's last doctrinal section in the book. Remember, the last section of doctrine is Hebrews 11, 1 through Hebrews 12, 17. It's a call to faith, but it's also a call to endurance. That's what we look at. Last week, as we started into chapter 12, we noticed that the author starts with an athletic metaphor. The readers find themselves immediately in a foot race where they're called upon God to, or called by God to run with endurance the race that is set before him. And in order to know what running well looks like, the author gives us all sorts of helpful information, verses one through three, that we considered last week. He described, if you remember, the motive, the manner, and the means of our running. Regarding the motive, he said, it's because we should run well because we have a great surrounding crowd of people who've already completed and finished the race in heaven. Regarding the manner, he tells us that running well includes or involves casting off every weight and the sins that cling so closely to us. I sure hope this past week you did not just shrug off the preaching of the word of God and the, the, the challenge to cast off every weight and sin, but that you went to God throughout the course of the week and you prayed, Father, help me, help me to cast off the distractions and the sins. We want to be a text church colonial, and that means submitting ourselves to what it says and trying to live in such a way. Regardless if you're a young person or an adult, it's taking the text and applying it. Did you cast off the weights and the sins by the power of the Holy Spirit of God this week? Regarding the means in Hebrews 12, 12 2 and 3, I love when he gets to the means. He shows us that running well will only be possible as, as a human being looks to the author and the finisher of faith, Jesus. Jesus ran well for us. And so we should thoughtfully follow his pattern as we live in this world. Jesus ran with endurance through a whole host of afflictions, right? Through beatings, through loneliness, through persecutions, and through crucifixion. And so the author's challenge to us in response to Jesus, I think it's pictured in that one main imperative. You remember what it was? You know what that one main, main challenge in verse two is? Run, thank you, 
I know some of the kids got it last week. I talked to some parents. And they said, all you kept, you kept talking about running, and my child just wanted to run the entire service. Uh, so at least, at least some people are getting it. But run in our spiritual life, that's the challenge of verses 1 through 3. Today, we will learn more about endurance in verses 4 through 11. In these verses, I think the author is dealing with the struggles of his readers in the way a good biblical counselor would help someone in a trial. The author is already fully aware of the struggle of his readers. And now he offers his biblical perspective on things. Perhaps you can recall a time where you were struggling through an issue. You were discouraged. You did not know what to do. But then a counselor came or a friend came who skillfully unleashed God's truth in your life to show you a way forward. In fact, I, I know that's true of some of you. One of the things that we're observing in our biblical counseling ministry here is that it's most often the people who've been helped by biblical counseling who are most enthused to learn how to do it. They come to us and they say things like, show us how to use the word like that. Today in our sermon, I think we'll learn how the author of Hebrews offers biblical perspective to those in trial. I've got a three-point outline. I think his counsel unfolds in three stages here in this text. Okay, so three points. Counsel unfolds in three steps. Number one, first, the author acknowledges the struggle of his readers. Look with me at verse four, Hebrews 12, four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I think this is an interesting way for the author to begin his admonition or counsel. In verse 4, I see the author doing two things here. I think he's both acknowledging their struggle and he's also comparing it to the struggle of Jesus. As a matter of fact, just before this in verse 3, the author uh, considered or spoke of the struggle that Jesus engaged in. Look, look up in verse 3. He says, consider him who endured from sinner, sinners, and notice how he describes this, such hostility against himself. Consider him. See, Jesus was mistreated by the vilest of human beings. He was mistreated by the Pharisees who rebuked him. They were not interested in the truth. They were interested in rejecting him. Jesus was abused by the Roman authorities and their soldiers. He was mistreated and he was crucified. Jesus was mocked by the crowds around him. You see, their cruel wrath turned against Jesus directly and cost him his life unfairly. So comparatively speaking, the suffering of the author's original readers was less severe than Jesus's because the text says they had not yet resisted unto blood. That is not any of them that he's addressing that first century audience had yet been martyred for their faith like Jesus. Yet in this comparison between them and Jesus, there is an acknowledgement of their own struggles. Once you look at the very first part of the verse again, verse four, uh, it says, in your struggle against sin. The word struggle here could be translated contest. I think the word reveals the nature of the fight in which his readers were engaging. As they were resisting, they were wrestling. They were struggling. They were in a contest. 
But then notice how he further describes this struggling. They were struggling against sin. Uh, this could literally be translated against the sin. In your struggle against the sin. I think what the author is doing here is he's personifying sin as, as one thing. Sin is our great adversary or opponent. And in, in its original context, I think that the predominant way that sin was attacking them or opposing them was through unbelief in the face of persecution. You see, sin was challenging them in a way in which the Roman government was putting pressure on believers in Jesus. They were making life difficult for anyone who claimed to be loyal to Jesus Christ as Kyrios, as Lord. And so this is a challenge, uh, their struggle against sin, the great adversary and opponent that was afflicting them. What seems obvious to me, though, in verse 4 is that the Hebrews were suffering hardships and struggles. I'm sure many of them were confused and discouraged by the things that were going around them, that were challenging them. Perhaps they were wondering things like, why? Why does God not just crush these Roman authorities? Have you ever been confused and discouraged about affliction in your life? Have you ever wondered, why is there so much pain in my life? Why am I experiencing so many difficulties right now? Well, what I would say to you is pay attention. The author is going to help us all in the very next section. Here the author, like a good counselor, addresses those feelings and those questions. Why? Why the struggle? Why the pain, God? Why am I going through this? And so after acknowledging their sins in verse 4, he then turns to Scripture. This is the second point of the outline. Okay, this is the author's counsel. Okay, he acknowledges their struggle, number one. And number two, he cites Scripture. He cites Scripture. He asks if the readers have forgotten a particular passage of Scripture, and then he quotes it. The passage is Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Okay, so I want to read how he introduces it and read the quote for you in the passage. Look down in your Bible, verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Okay, then here's a quote. Okay, it comes from his Old Testament Bible. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. I just love the impulse of the author here. He quotes scripture, he uses scripture to help them deal with their struggle against the sin. Now, when we experience major difficulties, I think sometimes we assume things. And one of the things I find my heart often assuming when I'm experiencing pain or difficulty is that this might just be because God is judging me because of my sin. And unfortunately, there are at least three different forces at work that reinforce that sometimes in our lives. One, of course, is the great tempter, the devil. The great tempter, the devil, brings accusations against us about our afflictions, the nature of them. And he does this and about our sin. He, I think often Satan will just kind of make that comparison. You're suffering so because you're such a sinful person. And I think he does this to squeeze every last ounce of joy that believers might fill in their walk with God. 
Added to that, I think, is the force of a, a zealous, oversensitive conscience. A zealous, oversensitive conscience can assault us in our most difficult moments as well. I mean, here we are, we're, we're languishing under the pain of a trial, and that's when our conscience comes along and tells us it's our fault, must be our sin that led to this. Yet still other times, I think well-intentioned believers come alongside of us and they misdiagnose the problem. They're like the counselors of Job. Remember Job's friends? They come, well-intentioned believers, with their bad theology, and they believe that this affliction must be the result of some hidden sin in our lives. Well, men and women, it is true that God sometimes sends punishment into our lives to root out sin. But in this passage, God sends painful experiences into the life of believers simply to train them or to strengthen them. That's the predominant note that I see in this passage. Now, to help us process, I think, what is happening, the author introduces a new analogy. He's been using a metaphor in, from the athletic arena. Now he uses a parenting metaphor, and he draws it from the Old Testament. The author considers his readers, and he thinks that the Bible, the Scripture, the Old Testament has something to say about this. And I think that's always a good place to start in our counseling. The scriptures are your answer. The citation is Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And let me just ask you to turn back there in your Bibles for a moment. Turn back to Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 3, of course, many of the early Proverbs are attributed to Solomon. Solomon, the son of David and the king of Israel, Proverbs 1, 1. In Proverbs chapter 3, we're able to learn from the counsel of a godly father to his son. If you remember this passage uh, and, and all around it, uh, you see that the original audience is clear. Solomon writes, uh, addresses uh, again and again from a father to a son. In fact, you can see that in our text. If, if you look in Proverbs 1 and verse 8, for instance, you see the words, hear my son. Look at Proverbs 2 and verse 1, my son. Look at Proverbs 3, the chapter we're going to look at in some detail here. Verse 1, my son. Look at verse 11, the, the text that he quotes, my son. Look at verse 21, my son. This is a challenge from a father to a son. I think it's intended from Solomon to teach the children of Israel. It's, this is more than stuff that's good for a prince. It's good for any follower of Yahweh. And so in Proverbs chapter 3, it's laid out that way. But in the first four verses, I think the father is, is giving incentives to his sons for following the Lord. Like you look in verse 2, length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Okay, So don't forget my teaching. That's the admonition. Then he gives this motivating factor. You'll have a long life if you do this. In verse 4, he gives an incentive there as well. Uh, in verse 3, he said, don't let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Then verse 4, so you will find favor and have good success in the sight of God and man. You'll have a good reputation if you do this. But in verses 5 through 12, I, I think uh, Solomon gives very sound advice where he exhorts, the father exhorts the son to respond properly to the Lord. I think these are great lessons, by the way, for any father to teach his children. You can see these four lessons very clearly in your Bible, starting in verse 5. You just look for the word Lord. Just look for the word Lord. 
Okay, so in in verses five and six, the first exhortation is trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It's number one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight paths for your feet. The form of all of these exhortations is always the same. The author will, the, the father will exhort his son to do something in regards to the Lord and then he'll give him a motivating argument for doing so. So in this text is trust in the Lord with all of your heart and the reason you should is at the end of verse six and he will make straight paths for your feet. Okay, so you get this father to his son offering advice. Trust in the Lord and he will make straight paths for your feet. The second one is verses seven and eight. Fear the Lord. So you're right in the middle of the verse. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And then here's the motivating factor. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Okay, there are good reasons to revere God. Physically, it will be a source of nourishment to your body. That's what the father is saying to the son. Fear the Lord. Number three, he says in verses 9 and 10, and if you're just following, you're just looking for the word Lord, you can do this, fathers. You can do this. You can instruct your sons in this way. Notice what he says in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. We need fathers who will teach their sons that, not just in verbal ways, but through their example. Honoring the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Here's the motivating factor. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. See, God often honors this proverb, doesn't he, in life? When you're considering giving of your first fruits to the Lord, and you're like, man, there's just not a lot of fruits here. Don't have a lot to offer, but I'm gonna do it in principle. I'm gonna do this as a form of worship to the God. And then he meets all of your needs abundantly. Sound advice from a father to his son, but the, the fourth one is where this quote comes. He says, uh, My son, do not despise the Lord. That's number four. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Does that verse, those verses sound familiar? They should because they're quoted in Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12 now. And we'll look at these texts in verses five and six. Here in these two verses, in this last admonition, the father exhorts his son to avoid two things. First, uh, and and the Old Testament uh, author, uh, I I think I should say the author of Hebrews is exhorting his readers to do this too, so that's how we'll look at it. Here the author exhorts us first, gives one imperative, we are not to casually regard the discipline of the Lord. Here the word discipline, I think, is a broad word in this New Testament text. It's a word that can have all kinds of different meanings. As a matter of fact, one commentator was going through a whole list of different possibilities. I'll spare you from everything he had to say. But he said, uh, this word discipline could speak of training or instruction or guidance or reproof or correction or punishment. Six different possibilities. Okay, so it's, it's a broad word. Of all those possibilities, I think discipline in this passage is speaking of God's training. Training. And so I think that synonym can be used to capture the idea of what's going on here. Now, sometimes training includes punishment for disobedience. That's why parents, right, they punish their children. Sometimes they spank their children. The idea is we send a little bit of pain, not beating, 
not physical abuse, but a little bit of pain to teach our children that pain accompanies disobedience and sinful choices. Other times, however, training is not a response to sin, a punishment to sin, but some other times it's out of a desire to simply strengthen someone you love with greater capacity or greater ability. Here, I think two illustrations can help you. Think first of a coach, a coach, a coach who is not punishing his team, but he's preparing them for game game time, okay? Now, I've had coaches that did the punishing thing too, Okay, you know, the game didn't go as well. At the end of the game, the coach is like, wait until Monday. You know, he's preparing you. We're going to have trash cans alongside of the lines in the gym. You just wait. Okay, but sometimes maybe before you fail miserably in a game, he's not trying to punish you. He's just simply trying to train you. He's educating you. He's preparing you for the moment of the game or Think of the second illustration here. God, I think sometimes is like a skilled surgeon who cuts us, but it is to help us. He cuts to help. It hurts, but it's for our good. See, doctors do not punish their patients. They desire for them to be healthy. That's why they do it. That would be a really bad doctor who says, you know what, I've been telling you time and time again, your blood pressure is high, and in this surgery, you're going to pay. Doctors don't do that, right? They don't punish their patients, but they do cut. They do perform surgeries because they care about the health. So, so discipline, I think, can speak of training, can, can speak of these two things, punishment for wrongdoing or training for godliness, And so what the author is saying in Hebrews is do not lightly regard it when God does that to you. But then secondly, he commands, the second part of that passage there in verse 5, the second command is not to grow weary or discouraged when God reproves you. That's the challenge to the son. That's the challenge, I think, to all of us as believers of Jesus Christ. Don't grow weary or discouraged when God is reproving us. To understand what this means, we have to understand what the word reprove means. Right? What does that mean? The word reprove, I think, speaks of punishment or reprimand that comes from the Lord when we need correction. Here, I think it is a response to sin. Reproval is speaking of punishment or reprimand that comes from the Lord when we need correction. And he says, do not grow weary or discouraged by that. I remember times when our children were discouraged by their punishment, the consequences of their actions. Sometimes, even as a small little child, even as two or three years old, they did it in a way that was pouting and manipulative. I remember moments like this when my children would they'd run to their bed after they were disciplined, and, and then they're on their bed, and they're, you know, you come in, they say, no one loves me. No one. Daddy doesn't love me. How should a parent respond in those moments? I say twofold. One, Reassure them of their love. And two, don't give in one inch to the manipulation. However, there are other times when our children, I think, can be discouraged because they're in trouble again. They've sinned again. They've failed again. It seems that other kids don't get in so much trouble as they do. That's where I think this passage can be helpful. The author says, don't grow discouraged about the discipline. It's a sign that your father loves you. That's a motivating factor. 
uh, continue. Don't grow weary or discouraged. And, and here's the reason why. When you are being rebuked, it's a sign that God actually loves you. God does this, the text says, with every son that he receives. Every son. I think by implications, well, every daughter that God receives, he will train in this way. God sends this particular type of pain into our lives to train us. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's acting like a counselor, right? He says, first he acknowledges their problem, their struggle, then he cites scripture, and then third, in verses 7 through 11, he extends a, a final challenge. In verses 7 through 11 here, the author gives his own words. This could be, in a sense, I kind of treat this as this is his exposition of what Proverbs 3 meant. This is like the Jewish uh, interpretation he gives to his Hebrew readers. That's, that's Proverbs 3. I just cited it. Now, let me tell you how you should respond to that text. Okay, so he gives his exposition. He extends the challenge regarding the nature of, of trials in verses 7 through 11. So let's look at them. He says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate uh, children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I think we can go fairly quickly through these verses, so don't lose heart. The author gives two important challenges, and I think two words stick out grammatically in this text. I'll give them to you. First, in verses seven and eight, the way we should respond to the proverb citation in our own struggles is first, we must endure. We must endure the discipline. You can see this very clearly at the beginning of verse seven, although I think it's a, a, a difficult little sentence to understand. I don't know about you, but as I read the ESV translation here and I try to make sense out of it, it says there at the beginning of verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. For some reason, that just doesn't stick in my mind. I can't really understand what's, what, what that's saying. And so I go back to the original. I'm like, okay, what does this phrase mean? And this is my own translation of it. Okay, there are three words in the original. And I think it should be translated this way. Regarding discipline, comma, endure. There are only three words in the original. And one of those is a command word. That's the word Endure. So I think what the author of scripture is saying is he's saying, regarding discipline, you endure. I like how one scholar, George Guthrie, one of my favorite scholars on Hebrews, I think he came here once and visited us and was a part of some classes here at the seminary. George Guthrie translates it this way. He says, with reference to discipline, endure. As a matter of fact, I've written that translation in the margin of my Bible. Regarding discipline, Endure. And so if I'm right in this translation, the, author, the author's emphasis is on one command, one word, the word endure. So the author's clear challenge in verses 7 and 8 is endure it. 
The author is exhorting us to endure. He's calling us to have stamina in our hardships and not to surrender to them. If you pay close attention to what's going on in this text, you might think this is a really hard challenge. Okay, the author's giving counsel, right? And here we are, right in the middle of hardship, and he gives us one word, endure. We might ask why, right? Why should I do that? This doesn't sound good. Like, I want to quit. I want this to go away. I want this hardship, this affliction, this trial, whatever it is. I want it to go away. Why should I endure? And men and women, if you simply keep reading in the text, the, the author answers that question. I love the Bible. So clear and logical. His answer to why is, is he says, God is treating you as sons. That is, these hardships are coming from God to train you because he is your loving parent. That's the main point of verses 7 and 8. I think when we were children, we, we often envied children who got away with stuff. Disobedience, and they never seemed to receive correction. Maybe we were suffering under some sort of parental punishment for disobeying. We dreamt of being the little boy or the little girl whose parents didn't seem to care about anything. But this text tells us that it's out of love for uh, his children that fa a father will train them. I think a strong implication here would be this. When fathers fail to train their children, it's because they love themselves, not their children. So finally, in verse 8 here, the author explains that the person who does not experience any rebuke from the Lord is not a son. He's actually an illegitimate child. Very strong word in the original. He's an illegitimate child. An illegitimate child, of course, is, is similar to what we would think of when we use that term. It's, but in the ancient world, it was one who held no rights or privileges of being in a family or would not have or experience any protection that a father would normally provide. In their world, fathers were not expected to give paternal instruction and correction to illegitimate children. I was reading this week and I came across an ancient author by the name of Jerome and he, he made a very profound statement. I wanna prepare you for it and I want you to think about it. This is what Jerome says about these concepts. Jerome said, he said, the greatest anger of all is when God is not angry with you. The greatest anger of all is when God is not angry with you. In an imperfect way, perhaps, I think that Jerome was saying this, God showing indifference to you is not a good sign at all. It's a sign that you're not his son, but you're illegitimate. That's why I've often said regarding church discipline, when a church removes a brother or sister, a professing brother or sister, keyword professing, a professing brother or sister from its membership because that brother or sister is stubbornly insisting on their sin. I think that professing brother or sister should expect God's discipline, God's training. And if God does not go after such sinners, I think it's good evidence that they are not believers because this text says God chastens Every son whom he, re he receives. Every son. So the author's main point here is to call us to endure discipline because it's a sign of God's love for us. And after calling us to endure, in verses 9 through 11, the author tells us to do one more thing. 
to cut right to the chase here, the heart, the emphasis. I think the author's call can be seen in three little words in the ESV in verse nine. Go right to the end of that verse. When he says, shall we not much more, and then here are the three words, be subject to the father of spirits or spiritual father and live. Some other English translations use the word submit here. And so after an initial statement about how we respect imperfect fathers who've tried to train us according to their, the best of their knowledge, the author asks this pointed question in the text. He says, shall we not much more? That's emphatic. Shall we not much more be subject to, submit to the spiritual father, our spiritual father, God and live? So men and women, as I look at verses 9 through 11, that's the call of this final part of the passage. It's submit, submit. And to be truthful here, uh, I think that this might be difficult for some of us if we actually have paid attention to the sermon or the biblical text in front of us. I think for some of us, this will be a challenge to adhere to or to believe what this text is saying. Although it's, this text is on a very important topic. If you haven't noticed, what I'm dealing with today is your view of God himself. Your view of God himself as a father. So I think some people will struggle with this text. In fact, I've met people who struggled with this text. Some of you, no doubt, won't like the fact that God is the source of some of our hardships in life. So I don't know. I like to attribute to other things. It's not like Satan. If I'm going through a difficult trial or affliction, that's Satan, right? Or that's my sin, right? There are other things. There are other beings I would accuse. But this text is saying sometimes God is the source of the affliction. It's not that he sins against you in any way or another, but he's doing so because he's training you. We especially don't like the fact that our heavenly father sometimes sends difficult difficulties into our life, not even because of our sin, but to train us, look more like Jesus Christ. So we kick and rebel against the view of a God like this. I've heard people say things like this before concerning this passage. I can't believe in a God like that. My God wouldn't do that. But men and women, this is not just a personal opinion. This is not just some, something that someone in a blue polka dot shirt said to you one day. It's not just something that a contemporary author gave you regarding his view of what God is like. The men and women, this is a divinely given explanation. And you see, God intends this truth to do something for you. He intends this truth to reassure you in the trial. And so, the challenge to you is submit. Submit to what God's word says here. Submit to God who sometimes sends pain to refine us, to train us. The rest of this passage, I think the author gives purposes of God's discipline, God's purposes and discipline. We won't take the time to look at all these, but at the end of verse 10, you can see this. He does this for our good. That's why God is training you, for our good. And he tells us, I think, more of what that means, that you might share in his holiness. 
And the third purpose I find down in verse 9, that later on it will yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness in your life. That is the, the fruit of peace and righteousness in your heart. Men and women, these are good purposes for our good that we might share in the holiness of God and that we might yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness. These are good purposes from a loving father. As I close, I ask you two questions. Won't you trust him? Some of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today are suffering in great affliction. You're in a great trial of the truth right now, and you're in, you're in turmoil internally. Maybe your family knows it, maybe your friends know it. I ask you, won't you trust God, your Father? You might not always know what's going on. That's like my motto for parenting. I'm an only child, I have five children. I often think I have no idea what's happening here. What in the world is going on? You might not always know what's going on, but your impulse should be to trust God. Won't you trust him? And then finally, won't you submit to him? Won't you submit to what he says about himself in this text? Regarding discipline, men and women, endure and submit to your spiritual father and live. Let's pray together. Father, this text presses in on perhaps the most important thing about us, I agree with Packer, the most important thing about us is our view of God. In this text, we learn, Lord, that sometimes God disciplines or trains us. He sends, with the original readers, perhaps he sends them into persecution and affliction. Sends them into that. And that God is using this for our good. He's using us this so that we might share, be, be sharers or receive his holiness. And he does this so that we might be able to yield peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, Father, I pray for any of my brothers or sisters here today who have a view of God that's been narrow before. It's not been open up enough. They, they, they've seen their view of God like a little channel on a river, and they're just saying, you know, God is just this, Father, and they're limiting you. And this text comes along, and it just takes away one of the, one of the props in the river and just opens it up. And so, Father, for that brother or sister who's never considered the fact that sometimes God is the source of the challenge or affliction in our lives, I pray that, that we would see that that's what this text is saying. This is not just Pastor Brent. It's not his interpretation. It's clearly, I think, in this passage. God chastens every son that he receives. Lord, help our impulse be to trust you. If there's anyone here today who's struggling and submitting to you, I pray that they would do that as well today. And Father, for our guests here today, perhaps there are some who do not know Jesus as their Savior. They have not experienced much of your training or discipline because they're, they're not a son. They're an illegitimate child. Perhaps, Lord, I pray that today they would see that the only way for them to be delivered, the only way for them to be, become a son or daughter of yours, after the entrance of sin, 
is by believing in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for their sins and who rose again so that they could be, they could be freed, so that they could be adopted as a son or a daughter become yours. I pray for our guests. I pray for anyone who doesn't know Christ that they would submit to him today. In Jesus' name, amen.